Welcome to the Commune Podcast. My name is Jeff Krasnow. What you are about to hear is one of seven keynote lessons from our 2022 Commune Wellness Summit, which featured more than 30 world-renowned teachers sharing their insights on a wide range of wellness topics. Now, my hope is that by the end of this extended lesson, you will have discovered at least one aspect of your life that you feel motivated to support with more love, more attention, and more balance. Now that insight will be different for each person or even each time that you listen. And this is one facet of why I called this company Commune, because exposure to a multitude of ideas, you could say a biodiversity of ideas, is how we develop individually and thus as a collective. Now, each of these teachers has a full-length course available on Commune. So if you are inspired to go deeper, I highly encourage you to sign up for a free 14-day trial of Commune membership at onecommune.com slash trial. You will find more than 100 courses on personal development, health, yoga, meditation, and social impact, as well as the full seven-day wellness summit. So without further delay, here's the second lesson from our 2022 Commune Wellness Summit titled The Spiritual Journey. Welcome. Today we'll be exploring the topic of spirituality, which can be a sensitive territory to traverse. While the language used to describe God, the divine, the metaphysical, varies across cultures and religions, I personally feel they are all pointing toward a common experience. And fundamentally, that experience is beyond words, which may be why we use so many different words in our attempt to describe it. So if you find yourself reacting to the language used by a particular teacher in these lessons, I encourage you to look for the experience they are attempting to point to with their words. And if what they are saying still doesn't land for you, then please take what does and simply leave the rest. We'll begin with Marianne Williamson, renowned spiritual teacher and interpreter of the spiritual tome, A Course in Miracles. Now she posits that love is the only thing that is real and everything else is merely an illusion. The true self is thus simply love. When we think and live and act from a place of love, we are in touch with our true self and feel at home. Now, I don't claim to have the definitive vocabulary for the age-old question of what is the self, but I do know that how we choose to identify ourselves has a significant impact on our sense of well-being. And the way Marianne speaks about the true self as pure love can soothe the nervous system. So try it on. You might find that it fits. Here's Marianne Williamson. So this is the idea. God is love. And not only is God love, but love is all there is. 
What is all-encompassing can have no opposite. So when you are thinking with love, you are literally being yourself. When you are in any way forgetting who you are, because the thinking of the world has taught you you're in danger when you're not, has taught you you're separate when you're not, has taught you that you have some other function other than to love, even though you don't, you get confused, you get thrown out of the kingdom. That's really, you know, when we say in the, the Lord's Prayer, thine is the power and thine is the kingdom and thine is the glory. Love is the power. Love is the kingdom and love is the glory. But boy, living on this earth, we think, oh, no, 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 no. This isn't about love. This isn't about forgiveness. This is about something else. That's the temptation of the false world. And it'll knock you out of your center. It'll knock you out of your wisdom. And you're going to blow it in relationships every single time. Only love is real. What is all-encompassing can have no opposite. So that means that when we're thinking without love, we're actually not thinking, we're hallucinating. And that's what the ego is. The ego is a false belief about who we are and a false belief about who other people are. When you realize who you really are, you also realize who other people are. All you are is love inside the mind of God. And that's all who other people are as well. So you've heard the line, there is only one begotten Son. From an esoteric metaphysical perspective, to say there is only one begotten Son means we're all it. So the Course in Miracles says you're like waves in the ocean thinking you're separate from other waves. You're like sunbeams to the sun thinking you're separate from other sunbeams. But really, there is no place where one wave stops and another starts. There really is no place where one sunbeam stops and another starts. But think about the psychological and emotional difference produced by those two differing ways of looking at the world. If I think of myself as one wave and there's an ocean and I'm surrounded by all these other waves from which I am disconnected, how can I not feel terrified of those other waves? How can I not be afraid that in any given moment my being will be obliterated, my being will be annihilated because of the power of the ocean that's going to come over me? But if, on the other hand, I think I'm connected with every other wave, this is one of us here, I'm connected with every other wave, I'm part of the ocean, then I feel at home in this universe. This is extremely important. When I think of myself as one with everyone, I can feel at home here. When I think of myself as separate from other people, I cannot feel at home and then I really am tempted to mess up relationships because I'm trying to get other people to either like me or other people to act a certain way so I can feel at home. But my even wanting them to do that is based on the idea that I don't realize I am home. I hope you found that lesson enlightening. Marianne's main point is that anytime we're not coming from a place of love, we are not being our true selves. When we identify as a separate self, when we equate ourselves with our status or our bank account or our emotional pain, then we're not identifying with the truth of who we really are. Now, we all anchor our identity to something or a multitude of things. And the way we identify has a substantial impact on our subjective experience. Our concept of what is truly the self is not just a philosophical question. It directly impacts how we spend our time and the way we react to our daily challenges. When we identify as love, 
it can really help us live a life of greater ease and of greater joy. It can be immensely freeing to root your self-concept in love. For those of you with access to Commune membership, we have two full courses from Marianne Williamson, one on relationships and another on how to more clearly convey spiritual concepts titled Teaching the Teachers. Okay, in this next video, we'll be hearing from David G, who after a 20-year career in business and finance, began a new journey to wholeness, apprenticing for a decade under Drs. Deepak Chopra and David Simon, serving as the Chopra Center lead educator and then as the first dean of the Chopra Center University, sometimes referred to as the velvet voice of stillness. David G. has taught millions of people around the world to heal their hearts, plant powerful intentions, and manifest their dream lives. In this lesson, he reminds us that in order to truly heal, in order to connect with spirit, to know the light, we must also know the darkness. Our wounds are where the light gets in. Through the wound comes the salve. So often we run from our wounds and avoid feeling painful emotions. We try to eliminate discomfort. But as David G. will share, acceptance of our pain is fundamental. Today we're going to explore the ancient concept. No mud, no lotus. We can go back 5,000 years to Lao Tzu, the great Chinese philosopher, who wrote, do you have the patience to wait until your mud settles and the water is clear? Can you remain unmoving till the right action arises by itself? And our society, our modern society, is all based on fixing and solving in the moment. But the mud is the answer. As the great teacher Elizabeth Winkler said, the wound is the way. And so often we run from the wound. We try to stop the pain, stop the suffering. We're trained in the elimination of discomfort and then reinforced in that practice in almost every aspect of our society. But acceptance is the key. Accepting that this moment is perfect because every single moment leading up to this moment is exactly as it should be doesn't mean there isn't pain and trauma and a horrible stuff back there. But without it, we're not here. Accepting ourselves as perfect and whole and pure because we were born and created perfect and whole and pure. And it's been a few moments since that day. And in that time, we have layered ourselves and layered ourselves and conditioned ourselves and judged ourselves and had so many harsh words for ourselves. Accepting that this moment is perfect. Accepting that we are whole and perfect. And accepting others for who they are. Those are the three things we struggle with. Lack of acceptance. Resisting what is. 
But if we know that every single moment leading up to this moment is perfect, if we're honest with ourselves, if we're willing to let go of grievances, we let people into our heads we would never let into our homes. Can we be kinder to ourselves? More accepting of ourselves? Can we embrace this sacred, precious, present moment and ask this question, is this happening to me or is this happening for me? Can we get to that place where we realize every moment is part of the growth process, that the past is prep? Preparing for the here and now. And so rather than regret it, rather than point fingers at it, rather than judge it, rather than have that harsh voice in our head, know that in order for us to get to a place of elevation, of understanding, of self-compassion, we need to fuel that with some suffering. No mud, no lotus. How else can we see others as reflections of ourselves if we have not suffered ourselves? And everything is a mindset. Let me spend some time in the stuff that's not so spectacular all the time. That's how I learn about life. That's how I grow. That's how I understand that every moment isn't a bliss fest. In fact, the path to bliss is not always filled with bliss. Our spiritual journey has peaks and valleys. And so I'd like to share with you this ancient Japanese concept known as Kintsugi. Kintsugi. We've all dropped a pot or a glass or a vase or a plate. And in that moment, we probably just felt really bad, swept it away, and thrown it away. But kintsugi is different. And I'm sure you've seen this. They're the pots or vases or pieces of pottery that suddenly have this golden thread woven through it. With kintsugi, it's a pot that's broken, or a vase that's broken, or a dish that's broken but rather than toss it away, and kintsugi means golden joinery or golden thread, where this gold powder is applied on lacquer. Some refer to this as kintsugi or kintsukuroi, which is when we take something that is broken, say a broken ceramic, and rather than discard it, we honor its past and make it even better. It turns into a new reality. So taking that broken pot and honoring everything that that pot was, and then elevating it with beautiful golden threads, now it makes it a work of art that contains the past and the present. No mud, no lotus. So. Kintsugi 
is the perfect metaphor for no mud, no lotus. Why don't we take some golden threads and lacquer ourselves, lacquer our grievances, lacquer our regrets. Weave a golden thread into all of those grudges we hold against ourselves and against others to create something even more beautiful. This builds on the concept of wabi-sabi, perfect imperfection or imperfect perfection. Acknowledging and recognizing that we are flawed, mortal, human, but we have a best expression that we can always keep aspiring to. And so one of the ways that we can do that is through having a gratitude practice. We don't spend enough time on gratitude. But there's actually a science behind gratitude. There's even a school. UC Berkeley has the Greater Good School. It's a school where they study gratitude and research gratitude. We know that the ventral and medial prefrontal cortex is activated when we have gratitude. In fact, people who have a daily gratitude practice seem to have the same benefits of people who meditate. They sleep better at night. They have lower blood pressure. They actually feel more grateful about life and they self-report higher levels of fulfillment in this life. And so gratitude can be that amazing kintsugi rather than us feeling so sad that we're in the mud. Let's celebrate the mud. The wound is the way. There's a beautiful gratitude practice that you can do every single day, scientifically proven. 20 seconds a day, being grateful about one thing will actually etch it into your brain. And if you can't show up and do it every single day for 20 seconds, 20 minutes once a week, writing a gratitude letter. Imagine if we could write a gratitude letter. You don't have to mail it. You could burn it. You could mail it. You could throw it away. You could rip it up. 20 minutes of writing a gratitude letter once a week transforms our neurology. And another tip is having a gratitude jar. Take one of those vases that you've kintsugi'd or just a jelly jar. And every time you're grateful for something, crumple it up. It's great if you do it with multicolored pieces of paper and pop it in there because there will come that moment where you're sitting in the mud and you're just so forlorn and you'll reach into your gratitude jar and pluck one of the things you are grateful for and it will shift you totally. So knowing no mud, no lotus, and knowing that we can kintsugi ourselves in every moment, just having your awareness on a daily basis, there's so many things for you to be grateful for, so many. Welcome back. This lesson makes me think of Viktor Frankl, who wrote that we can find meaning in life in three different places, in work, in relationships, and curiously, in suffering. Now, the first two seem self-evident, 
But the third often reveals itself to be true only when we gradually learn to transform our pain and trauma into wisdom, compassion, and gratitude. To realize that our suffering has made possible a new form of beauty to emerge. Now, this is often called post-traumatic growth. David G's full commune course, Adventures in Spirituality, offers not only lessons like this one, but also full-length meditations to accompany each lesson. It's worth the trip. Our next lesson comes to us from the yogi and mystic Sadhguru, who was named one of India's 50 most influential people. Sadhguru has a unique ability to make the ancient yoga sutras relevant to the contemporary world, acting as a bridge to the deeper dimensions of life. We recently hosted Sadhguru here at Commune Topanga, and this next lesson is an excerpt from that extended Q&A. Well, we can believe. What belief essentially means is, we neither have the courage nor the commitment to seek what is true. So we believe whatever is socially convenient. If you are in a certain society, you believe something and you think that is absolute. If you go to another society, they will laugh at your beliefs, but they have something else funny. So everybody has their set of beliefs. Belief essentially means that you are not interested in truth. That means you're willing to make up something that you do not know. Somewhere, there is not enough sincerity or courage to see what I do not know as I do not know. Because, first of all, the value of I do not know has been completely tarnished and rubbished by people. I do not know is the greatest possibility in your life. Only when you see, I do not know, the longing to know, the seeking to know, and the possibility of knowing becomes a reality. Whatever I don't know, I will believe. Well, you will sleep well tonight. That's a whole thing. So you must make up your mind, first of all, are you looking for solace, or are you looking for a solution in this life? If you're looking for solace, just believe something. It'll work. You'll sleep well. If everything around you is... all the situations around you are doing well, you will live okay and die. Nothing... no... nothing wrong with it. It's just limited, that's all. There's nothing wrong. There's nothing wrong in eating, sleeping, reproducing and just dying one day. What's wrong with that? We are all here because somebody ate, slept and reproduced, that's why we're here, all right? So nothing wrong with it, it is just that it's limited. If something called the madness of seeking has come to you, then it won't work, that's all. If you are a sane person, socially correct, it's perfectly fine to believe something and be happy about it, what's wrong? Nothing wrong. So beliefs and beliefs, various types of beliefs all over the world, <laughs> I'm sure many of you have traveled around the world and you know how many sorts of beliefs are there. The important thing is just to know 
that if we work hard enough on you from your childhood, we can make you believe just about any damn thing in the universe. Hello? We need to rub you nicely from your childhood. That's the important thing. If we leave you free till you are eight, ten, then you are trouble. We must rub you down right from the beginning so that you will simply believe what your parents believed, their parents believed, their parents believed forever, okay? Because it gives you… it's a club. You can call it by many names, but it's actually a club. You all believe one thing, you're one club. They all believe something, they're another club. But at least the clubs don't wage wars. <laughs> uh, maybe they'll have little social, uh, you know, social media tiffs. But uh, these hardcore beliefs will lead to enormous amount of confrontations and conflicts in the world. Leaving that aside, about karma, karma is not a concept that you or me can make up. Because you need to understand, this comes from a cultural dimension and a spiritual dimension where there is no belief system as such. Well, here and there people try to create some beliefs in small pockets, but overall there is no belief system. That's why Indians are eternally confused, because there is no one belief system. About everything there is an argument, all right? If there are five people, they have ten opinions. <laughs> yes. So, this is because a culture that was steeped in spirituality, today only largely retains only remnants of it, the jargon of it, not the… you know, the fruit of it is not there, just the jargon is there. Uh, not that it is not at all there, it is there, but not like how it used to be where nearly at least eighty to ninety percent of the people were in some kind of spiritual practice just a few centuries ago, that is not there anymore. Because of that, lot of interpretations and misinterpretations happen. About retribution, the fundamental psychology of retribution comes from this simplistic idea of if you are a good guy, you are going to heaven, if you are a bad guy, you are going to hell. How many are going to heaven here, I want to know? <laughs> Hello? You going? Good. But you must first check out what's there, you know. <laughs> There's no Wi-Fi, just telling you <laughs> So your idea of individuality is a completely… your psychological imagination, your individuality. Because of this, karma comes in. Because in this vast cosmos where you do not know where it begins, where it ends, you, a small little individual, it terrifies you. You have to make up things. You have to make up things to survive here because if you just look like this, like this, you don't know where this begins, where it ends. In the middle of nowhere, this small little mud ball called earth is spinning around and we are sitting here and look at us. Fear? Not knowing how to handle our fear, we make up something nice. Somebody's up there managing everything, don't worry, he's a good manager of things <laughs> And you're suffering, you must be a bad guy. 
you're having a good time? Oh, you must have done some great karma somewhere, <laughs> all right? <laughs> so this kind of thing has been going on, reward and punishment, reward and punishment, because fear and guilt is the way to control people. Karma comes into play in your life when you understand life is not about control, life is about liberation. Any number of people coming to me and asking, Sadhguru, how to control my mind? I said, why the hell do you want to control your mind? Do you want to liberate your mind or control your mind? Oh yeah, I would like to liberate, but how to control? <laughs> the problem is right now, they're having mental diarrhea. That's the problem. When you're having mental diarrhea, you think of control. No, your mind, your intelligence, your faculties, who you are must be liberated. Boundaries should be broken, not set. Control means to set boundaries, to liberate means to break boundaries. See, look at yourself, whoever you are right now, whoever you may be, whatever you may be, you would like to be something more. Hello? Yes or no? Let's say that something more happens right now. What? What? Something more? That happened right now. What? Something more. We can go on like this. Let's say… what's your name? Elizabeth. Elizabeth. Oh, it's a right name also. Let's say we made you the queen of this planet. <laughs> hey, don't look at me hopefully. <laughs> I will not commit such blunder <laughs> Let's say we made you the queen of this planet. Are you fulfilled and there? No, you will want the moon, of course. We give you the moon, the solar system, just a small one. The moment you are the queen of solar system, you will look at the rest of the galaxy. We gave you one galaxy, will you close there? No. So there is something within you which wants to expand doesn't like it, doesn't like boundaries. Wherever you set the boundary, it wants to be something more and something more and something more. You are not looking for more, you are looking for all. Something within you is longing to become boundless, but right now trapped within physical limitations. What karma means is the basis of your physicality. See, right now you have a physical body. This physical body has taken this human form Whatever you may eat, let's say you ate only worms for the next five years, do you think you will become a bird? Hello? I'm asking you. No. You do what you want. There is memory here that it will not get confused. It knows this is a human being. Do whatever you want. This will only take human form because there is a software. You cannot remove. This is karma. This is evolutionary memory. Next, there is genetic memory. You may not remember, I can pick on you. I'm picking on you because you're in the front row, okay? <laughs> uh, let us say five hundred years ago, how your great-great-great-great-grandmother looked, you do not know, but her nose is sitting on your face. How your forefathers looked a million years ago, you do not know, but even the skin tone, your body remembers. So there's enormous amount of evolutionary and genetic memory. 
over that comes karmic memory. Like this, there are eight dimensions of memory. I will not go into all that, that is... that's a humongous aspect. So, now all these memories put together, here sits Elizabeth. When she says, I am Elizabeth, it is an amalgamation of all these unimaginable levels of memory. Every cell in your body carries this. When I say every cell in your body carries this, what I'm saying is, every cell in your body carries more memory than your entire brain can ever imagine, trillion of times more. After all, see, your parents, not just yours, all of ours, our parents were so stingy, they gave us only one cell each. Huh? Virus coming at us in millions. <laughs> only one cell? See, that one cell remembered everything that it needs to remember, isn't it? They didn't have to give you a million cells to make you who you are, just one cell. Nothing has been forgotten. Everything was there in that one cell, isn't it? So in every cell, the volume of memory that you carry in one single cell is trillion times more than what you can imagine in your brain. So there is a whole body of memory which is what we're calling as karma. Certain aspects of memory are articulate, certain aspects are inarticulate, some are conscious, some are subconscious and unconscious, like this variety of memories. Without these memories, you don't exist. You cannot have a form. There is a form to you only because of memory. If there is no memory, there is no physical form. So all this together is called karma. So does karma, it is not a concept that you believe or disbelieve, it is always working here as you sit here. Since you were born, what you were exposed to, what you were not exposed to, pleasant things that happened, unpleasant things that happened, every thought, every emotion, every action that you performed, all that together, the residual memory of all that is you right now, isn't it, as a person? Now this memory, is not bad or good, it's just there. Only because human beings have such a vivid sense of memory, there is a possibility of our life becoming rich. Suppose what happened day before yesterday you forgot, and only yesterday's memory is there in your head right now. If this happens to your body, you will disintegrate. But let's say even in your mind, only what happened yesterday is in your mind. You have a very insignificant life isn't it? Because from your childhood, every little thing, important, not important, good ones, bad ones, good, bad, ugly, every kind, is there in your head. With all this, you are… there is a richness of experience to you. So karma is neither good nor bad, it is a platform upon which you sit. If you stand on this platform and do your act today, no problem, your act will be rich. But if this platform becomes like quicksand and you start sinking into it or you put glue on it and once you put your foot there, you can't move anymore, this has happened to people. Their memories have made them into statues. They can't move anywhere, they're just stuck. Maybe they got this position or this position, they're just stuck there. This is the way I can think, 
this is the way I can feel, this is the only way I can do it, I can only love this person, I cannot think of even looking at this person. Endlessly they are fixing themselves like this because they're allowing memory to seep into now. Memory means past. You cannot fix the past. You can only experience the present, but you can craft tomorrow the way you want. What is now is already here, you can only experience it. What is yesterday is not here. You cannot fix it. You can only pick and choose what you want. That is, if you have created a little distance between you and your entire memory bank, now you can pick and choose what you want. Otherwise, it seeps into your life everywhere. It won't let you live. It will make sure your present is like yesterday, your tomorrow is like yesterday, everything is like yesterday. It will not allow you to live a fresh life. You are not a fresh life in many ways, because without you knowing, your grandmother seeps into you. When you were eighteen, you thought, I will never be like my mother, I'm like this. But by the time you're forty-five, suddenly you walk like her, you sit like her, you talk like her. Have you seen this happening? <laughs> no, no, I didn't say you're forty-five, okay? I wish I was So, because your mother, your grandmother, your grandfather seeps into your life, they try to live. Dead people are greedy. They want to live through the living. It's very important that you enjoy them, you remember them, you value them, you respect them, but they must be a little away. If you do not create this distance, you don't have a life of your own, you're just an extension of something. Well, you may be proud of that also, but I'm just sorry, because you're not a fresh life, because no new possibility will open up. Above all, you cannot move into the freedom space, you will just be ruled by memory. Memory is a fantastic thing. At the same time, memory is a boundary. See, now I've seen you, Elizabeth. If I see you tomorrow, hey, Elizabeth, why? Because you're in my memory. If you're not in your me if you're not in my memory, I will look at you, pushing, stranger, all right? So you must understand, memory is a boundary of your experience. Right now, these people are in my memory. Oh, these are all my friends. These people are not in my memory, who are they, you know? So memory is a great possibility, at the same time it's a prison of its own. Me you're living within the sphere of your memory is simply because… because people want to live with the familiar always. This means what's in their memory or what's in their karma. What this means is, you are… you are building a wall of self-preservation. The walls of self-preservation, after some time, are the walls of self-imprisonment. You cannot help it. If you build a wall around you, because there was an enemy outside, let's say, you built a wall around you. Now, it's not only that enemy cannot come in, even after he's gone, you cannot get out, isn't it? So this is karma, that your karma is a possibility, at the same time it's a limitation. So it's not about getting rid of it. It is not about labeling it good or bad. I'm particularly stressing on this because everything in this part of the world is labeled as good or bad. Everything is either good or bad. I'm seeing even on 
international news channels, people are using words like good guys and bad guys. The bad guys are always on the other side, of course. That means essentially I'm good, you're bad, that's all. The fundamental principle is that, all right? Whatever I do is good, whatever you do must be bad. Well, what this leads to, you know, but karma means it is the most dynamic way to exist. That is, you understand who you are right now, whether you know all the detail of it or not, but you're acknowledging who I am right now is entirely my making. Who I will be tomorrow now comes into my hands. When we say karma, it does not mean everything in the world will happen your way. My life is my karma means my life is my making. Does it mean to say everything in the world will happen my way? World happening your way or not is not important. This one person must happen your way. If this one person happened your way, you are a fantastic being. If you were happening exactly the way you want, would you keep yourself blissful or miserable? Hello, hello, you must answer this question. Blissful. Whatever you may want for your neighbor, at least what you want for yourself is highest level of pleasantness, isn't it? The only problem is you are not happening the way you want because somewhere you have attributed yourself to something else. That, I am like this because my father, well, we can't change the guy now. <laughs> that was done long time ago. Now if I say I'm like this because my father was not all right, well, you're a lost case, aren't you? You're a lost case because who you are right now, this is your karma. If you see this, this moment's karma will be one hundred percent in your hands. Past karma, you cannot change. What you did yesterday, can you change? You cannot change. This wanting to change comes because you're looking at something that is dead. See, among dead people, you don't say, oh, this is a good guy, this is a bad guy, whoever dies, you… Hello, this much culture everywhere there is in the world, except a few people who do terrible things, even to the dead bodies. There are a few people like that. Otherwise, generally in every culture, irrespective of what religion, culture, whatever it is, when somebody is dead, because he's not a good guy or a bad guy, he's just there, no trouble, isn't it? So, this problem of labeling everything as good or bad is coming from the fundamental aspect like this, because we perceive everything partially. See, right now if you see this part of my hand, you cannot see this part of my hand. This is the nature of your perception. What you see, what you hear, what you smell, what you taste, everything is in parts. You never grasp the whole thing. Because of this, you perceive everything in parts. Once you per perceive things in parts, see, light is good, darkness is bad. No, no, whole lot of creatures won't agree. I'm sh maybe even the Los Angeles society won't agree. <laughs> yes? <laughs> there is more life… I I'm not talking about your city, I'm talking about the world, okay? In terms of various species, there is more life alive in the night than in the day. The forest comes alive in the nights. 
So you, t you sit with a... let's say you sit with an owl and start an argument. Which is light, which is darkness? You and the owl, where do you think it'll get? Hello? <laughs> Endless argument? Who is right, I'm asking? You or the owl? Hello? Both right. See, if you're saying both right, this means either you're in the diplomatic corps <laughs> or you have a successful marriage. You learn to say both, both, both to everything. See, one can be right or the other can be right or both can be wrong. Both can't be right, isn't it? Which is light, which is darkness. How can both be right? But in marriage it happens, you have to say both, otherwise <laughs> you're fired <laughs> So, this is something we need to understand that our faculties as sense perception is only good for survival, not for exploring the nature of the existence. It is nice, you can see, hear, smell, taste, this is good for survival process. If you see clearly, you will survive better. If you hear clearly, you will survive better. But this will not open up the doors of existence for you to know, because there is no knowing. I'm saying something as stark as like light and darkness, you cannot decide. There is no experiential dimension to it to clearly tell you which is which, isn't it? Because a whole lot of people, whole lot of creatures think night is light, day is darkness. So that is how limited sense perception is, because sense perception is attuned for your survival. In you, the survival is tuned one way, in the owl, it's another way. In all other creatures, it's different ways. The way you see things, other creatures are not seeing things that way. That doesn't mean they are wrong and you're right. It's just that nobody is seeing the full picture. With this, we are making conclusions not only about creation, also about the creator. This is like, let's say we gave you a million piece jigsaw. You found four pieces. You put it together and say, wow, this is a crow but it's a million-piece jigsaw. So if you want to perceive this, you need to transcend sense perception. If you transcend per sense perception, you have no problem with karma. Karma has no impact on you. It doesn't matter what kind of karma you have, it has no impact on you. If you are limited to your sense perception, karma plays its role, because the very way you see something, it influences that. Because I is not a simple camera, it is depending upon the memory bank within the brain for it to see people in a certain way. Just based on the shape of the nose or color of the skin or something else like that, thousand things happen in people's minds, isn't it? Hello? All the time. So this is because they genuinely feel that way. See, they're not pretending, they genuinely feel that way. This is why it's extremely important that we handle this karma properly, because if you really want to solve all the discriminatory process on the planet, the most important thing is to understand how are you coming to this? On what basis is somebody beautiful, somebody ugly? On what basis is somebody good, somebody bad? If you look at this, you will see it is your karma. That is the way your karma is. Unless you rise above that, 
you cannot help making judgments, this is good, this is bad, this is okay, that's ugly, that's beautiful. Like this, it goes on making without your permission, isn't it? It's not asking your permission, it just makes it automatic because the karma is there if you do not distance yourself from that. So this retribution, this idea of retribution is coming from this fundamental... Uh, I was about to say an ugly word which goes very well in India, but I don't want to use that word here for you <laughs> So, uh, what this retribution comes from this idea that you know, the parents and the teachers, in their own image, they created God. If you do something, they'll wrap you on your knuckles, otherwise they'll smack you in the face, otherwise they'll reward you with something, chocolate cake. The same thing, expanded, becomes hell and heaven. This is a very simplistic idea, selling for a long time. and. Every time I'm seeing uh, these days especially, I thought it was past, but once again the younger people are doing this. Everything, some something good happens, bad happens, they look up. They're looking up for help. See, you're on a round planet. Hello? Is the planet round or flat? What do you think in California? Is it round or flat? So, you're sitting on a round planet, and the damn thing is spinning all the time. And if you look up, you're obviously looking up in the wrong direction. Hello? Yes or no? Do you know what is up in this cosmos? Hello? Is it marked somewhere, this side up, this side down? No, you, you cannot even figure which is up and which is down. Go and ask people in Australia, which is up? They'll say like this. So, you do not even know what is up and what is down, but you're so knowledgeable about what is up there, this is dangerous. So, karma means you are the maker of your life. When you... it doesn't mean that you created the planet, okay? It doesn't mean you created the cosmos, no, no, no. The maker of your life, do not talk about things which are not in your experience. If you talk about something, which is not your near experience, if we put it very bluntly, we have to just say you're bloody lying. Hello? Just... just look at the society, look at the scriptures, look at the religions, look at the philosophies. Sincerely, just as a simple human being, look at it. How much lie, how much truth? Enormous amount of lies passing on from generation to generation, generation to generation. If you stop this, then you will come to terms with your karma and you can become the maker of your life. If you... you know, I may think I'm a yogi from Southern India, okay, mystic from Southern India, not an easy thing. So if I walk off this thing, well, I will crash on my head. Or you think I'll walk away in the air? What do you think? Come on, have some trust. This happened. A Jewish rabbi went to Israel. He was very excited. First time from America, he went to Israel. And uh, he went to Lake Galilee. 
So he asked the boatman, I want to take a ride. Take me across the lake and bring me back. How much? The guy said, five hundred dollars. He said, what? For a half an hour boat ride, five hundred dollars? It shouldn't cost more than fifty. He said, five hundred dollars, are you not getting it? Because this is not just a lake. This is a sacred place. Do you know, on this lake, Jesus himself walked upon the water? Then the rabbi looked at the boatman and said, Well, I can imagine, at this price, anybody would walk. <laughs> Sadhguru's message, in a nutshell, is how about we tend to cling to beliefs for fear of facing the unknown. Now, learning to say, I don't know, brings with it tremendous possibility, allows for liberation, for us to break free from our past, from the limited definitions of God, from our karma, from the memory of our ancestors that lives within us, from history repeating itself. A lot of promise, but a lot of deep personal and spiritual excavation as well. The choice is yours. As he says, if you're looking simply for solace, just believe something and you'll sleep well. But if you want to go deeper, we are fortunate to have collected more than 30 lessons from Sadhguru in his commune course, Wisdom of the Mystic. In this course, he teaches what he calls skillful inner management to free you from patterns of fear, insecurity, and suffering. In this next lesson, we take a cultural U-turn and bring you actor, comedian, and rabble-rouser Russell Brand on how he defines his higher power. As he says, this is spirituality as you understand it, a power greater than yourself as you understand it, which aligns nicely with what we just heard from Sadhguru about belief. Now, this lesson is based on Russell's interpretation of step two of the traditional 12-step system originally designed for alcoholics, but now used across a wide array of addictive behaviors and tendencies. Now, even if you don't identify as someone with an addiction, the 12 steps are a helpful guide for anyone on a spiritual journey. Here's Russell Brand. Step two in the original form is we came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. There's a lot to unpack in there really. Firstly, the idea that we're acknowledging that our behaviour has been insane. Secondly, that there is a power greater than ourselves. That's a, an interesting thing to address because often unconsciously while we're embedded in our problem, we're accepting and inhabiting this kind of odd negative omnipotence I'm worthless, I'm a terrible person, my life is a mess, and yet somehow I'm the ultimate authority in my own life, unable to conceive even of a power greater than myself, completely consumed by selfishness, completely consumed by self-centeredness. This is where the 12-step program again aligns with spiritual ideas that are uh, much older and much more mysterious and in some senses allude to a potency that's here used in a very practical way, a power greater than ourselves, the acknowledgement 
that I am not the summit of all power. It's the teasing of the notion that there's somewhere to go, that there's somewhere to get to. Now, when I reinterpret the steps, step two for me was, could you not be fucked? Is, the, is this all that there is? Are you doomed, Cain-like, to wander the world, fucked for all eternity, cast out of Eden in your fuckness? But in the more uh, traditional version of step two, the evocation of a power greater than yourself is a beautiful and powerful thing. You know, it can be, and for me is, the idea of God, of ultimate power, of omnipotence, of ultimate grace. But more practicably, someone said to me, and it's worth acknowledging at this point, that everything I've got to say that's of any value was once said to me by someone else. And the stuff that sounds crazy, I'm probably improvising. Someone said to me, all this power has to do that's greater than yourself is move you from drinking all the time to not drinking all the time. Step two is about hope, whether it's hope that you can change substance misuse, hope that you can change the way that you treat your partner, whatever it is, it's inviting and accepting the possibility of change, that there is a power that can change you from a person that drinks and takes drugs to a person who doesn't drink and take drugs, to a person who's obsessed about what other people think of you and don't feel good enough unless you get continual approval, to a person who can quite happily live without that. A power greater than myself has restored me to sanity. A power greater than myself can continually take me out of my madness and deposit me once again in a kind of simple comfort. It is possible for me to not be fucked. I've seen people that are terrible drug addicts stop taking drugs. I've seen people that are obsessed with themselves and obsessed with sex. Any of the numerous manifestation of the condition of addiction or attachment or whatever you want to call it can be addressed by using this program. So, step two, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. There is a power greater than ourselves. We are insane. It's possible for us to change. It's a step that's based on hope. Often when I'm challenged by something, when I've acknowledged that I've got a problem, really what I want is my outer life to confer, conform to my wishes. I don't want to act differently. I don't want to think differently. But this program makes clear that I have a kind of personal authority and autonomy and that the responsibility for change lies with me. I will have to start doing things that I haven't previously done. I will have to stop doing things that I've previously been doing. It's a difficult thing to embrace. So when I notice myself thinking the same thoughts, like, oh, I, I want to look at my phone straight away. I want to see if there's been, you know, an email from another nation verifying me, showering me, with digital self-validation, I have to think differently. I have to go, no, I've taken step one around looking at my phone. That's something I'm powerless over and that made my life unmanageable. I don't want to do that anymore. Now I've come to believe that a power greater than myself can restore me to sanity. Now we tentatively, somewhat timidly, embark on a journey of hope. It's pretty frightening. It's frightening to be a drug addict and put down drugs. It's frightening to be a codependent person and say, no, I'm gonna to relate to my partner differently now. These, these 
changes mean that you are confronted by the fear that you were trying to avoid by indulging in that behavior in the first place. That's why something as seemingly parochial and mundane as not looking at my phone, for me, can be a sort of, like slices open the intestines of my self-obsession and dread of the world. Suddenly, here I am, eviscerated, confronted with, oh my God, the reason you were looking at your phone is because you can't bear to be you. The reason you're masturbating is because you can't bear to be you. The reason you're thinking, if I get that rise, if I get that job, if I make that movie, oh, it's because you can't bear to be you. And there's a reason that you can't be, bear to be you, and that's because there is no you. The entire thing is a construct made up of biochemical drives and memory. Not that you're not a unique and wonderful human individual as unique as your own fingerprint. Of course you are. The whole point of 12-step recovery is to recover the person you were intended to be. That assumes that there was an innate teleology that you were embarking upon as surely as a seed becomes a tree. No one would question that ordinary miracle that encapsulated there within the acorn is the miracle of the mighty oak. None of us questions that and few oak trees in their adolescent sapling stage have some overbearing father or negligent mother barking at them that they're too fat or they're not good enough or they'll never be as good as their brother tree. The journey of recovery, step two in particular, takes you back to a place where you recognize that you were going somewhere, that there is a better version of you. This is the beauty and the optimism of this program, that you are not worthless, that your own belief that you are worthless is as much as an, an illusion that you could make yourself happy with a life of endless Ferraris and blowjobs. We know that's an illusion now, particularly if you're a fragile and awkward driver such as myself, I struggle anyway, even when I'm trying to stay bang on that highway code. A few twitches in the region of the groin is the last thing I need. Straight into the crash barriers. So step two is about hope. It's about positivity. It's the acceptance that there is a better you waiting to be born. Part of step two is having a conception of a higher power. That might be difficult for you because your previous experiences with God and religion and spirituality might have been negative. You might have experienced so much pain and trauma and suffering in your life that the idea of believing in God now seems sort of naive and superstitious. And there's been times in my life that I've thought that, you know, that religion is for sort of crazy white people and fragile, mad, frantic brown people. Religion gets bad PR. The only time you encounter religion these days is someone has committed some atrocity or someone's not letting someone else do what they want in a bedroom or a clinic. You know, but this is not the religion or the spirituality that we're dealing with here. This is, this is spirituality as you understand it, a power greater than yourself as you understand it. This for me is not an opportunity to be glib. You shouldn't be like nominating some ridiculous abstract caricature of God or some sort of simple obvious dumb deity. Oh well, could a power greater than myself just be this statue? No, it's, for me, this conception of God, this invitation to believe in a power greater than yourself, it can be very um, humbling because it's, it felt to me like a return to a sort of innocence. You know, like most cynics and skeptics are wounded. It's hard to once again open your heart, particularly if you've just let go of a behavior 
or a substance that was holding your life together and stripped of that carapace, you're now being invited to open your mind to the possibility of a power greater than yourself. The important thing, of course, is it's not being prescribed to you. It's not some austere, patriarchal figure. It's not some hand-me-down deity from a culture that doesn't love you. It's simply a personal willingness to accept or even inquire into the idea of a better version of yourself, of a way out, of a way out of the synaptic code, the neurological trap that you've been inhabiting that's no longer working for you. If that's, that could be something as disposable as I wanna change the way I use the phone. It could be something as life altering as I can't continue to drink or take drugs. Whether it's a, an overtly radical change or a small change as you continue your journey of self-improvement, step two is a necessity and an understanding and an acceptance of a power greater than yourself is a necessary component, but consider the alternative. But there is no power greater than yourself. Isn't that even more crazy that you've already fully inhabited all possibility? The sort of narcissistic whiplash of that, that this is the only you that you could ever be. That's more insane than the idea that there is a better you waiting for you to arrive. Step two. Like much of the 12-step program, is a, a very broad spectrum. You could approach it with deep esotericism. You could spend time now contemplating the nature of God, the nature of being, the nature of consciousness, the possibility of migrating from one aspect of yourself to another. The idea that you may already be a kind of shell that the pain, the call to arms that you felt and acknowledged in step one was merely a, the commencement of a metamorphosis. For we know, don't we, that the caterpillar don't merely sprout antenna and wings in that pupae. Not pupae, not some fecal pastry, no, in the cocoon. <laughs> that the caterpillar deconstitutes entirely, becomes as liquid, that there is a kind of death of the old self for metamorphoses to take place. Step two is about hope, just a gentle acceptance of fragile hope. Step two is embarking on this journey with hope, with optimism, with the fragile belief that you may be beautiful, that there may be a wonderful life for you, that you needn't live in the tethered misery of post-enlightenment rationalism, if I may be so bold. We are born, we are material, we die, we live in a bag of skin, we are organs functioning in some delicate inner ballet that will one day necessarily end. What is behind this cosmology? What is behind it? How is the material world suspended, held, continuing, is there a way that we can access it through ritual, through prayer, through practice? All we need to do is invite these possibilities into our mind to 
let the drawbridge down to allow yourself to be bare to hope, to dare to feel, to look for a moment beyond the fear of self-prohibiting belief and to accept that there is another way. This is where this program will take you. Spend a moment believing that it is possible for you to change. One of the aspects I like about Russell's interpretation of step two is that this relinquishing of control to a higher power is like a return to childlike innocence, to hope and to optimism. He mentions that most cynics are wounded and I'd posit that most people are wounded too. And much of our suffering comes from fear of being wounded again. It's through accessing a sense of hope in spite of our pain that we heal our connection to spirit, whatever the word spirit means to you. Russell covers all 12 steps in a similar fashion in his course in commune membership, Recovery with Russell Brand. In that program, he shares how you can use the 12-step system to untangle yourself from problematic relationships with work, romance, social media, drugs, alcohol, sugar, sex, gambling, food, pornography, and codependency. Now this brings us to the conclusion of this lesson, which we designed to help you heal your relationship to spirit and to deepen your understanding of what spirituality means to you. For more, check out the full-length courses for each of the teachers you heard today or look up all of our growth courses in commune membership. We have many amazing spiritual teachers in our library. It has been a complete pleasure to be your host and guide today. In love, include me. Thank you for listening to the second lesson from our seven-day Commune Wellness Summit titled The Spiritual Journey. Now, if you enjoy this show, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. If you are a regular listener, you have a sense for how much effort we put into this show's creation, and we really do our best to keep ads to a minimum. So if you're looking for a way to support our efforts, the best way is to subscribe to Commune. You'll access more than 100 courses featuring the world's top authors and thought leaders, as well as the full-length Wellness Summit. The membership version of this summit includes yoga, meditation, and breathwork classes paired with each daily lesson. So you can actually embody what you are learning. For 14 days of free Commune membership, just visit onecommune.com trial. And of course, feel free to reach out to me directly anytime with suggestions and criticism of the constructive variety at jeffk at onecommune.com. Lastly, and not leastly, I would like to thank the folks that make this show possible week over week, including Jacob Laub, Megan Stone, Violet Augustine, Ruby Foster, Emma Fret, Silvana Alcala, and Ryan Tillotson. That's all from the Commune for today. My name is Jeff Krasnow, and I am here for you. Thank you.